This episode of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And to want to give a special thank you to Chris Horn, Timothy Alcock, Andrew Murphy, and Shane Casimer, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Stephen, who just increased his pledge amount. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 525 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today's guest is Sabina Hassenfelder, creator of the popular YouTube series Science Without the Gobbledygook. She's a research fellow at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies, where she leads the Superfluid Dark Matter Group, and she's also the author of the book Lost in Math, How Beauty Leads Physics Astray. And in this interview, we'll be discussing her new book, Existential Physics, a scientist's guide to life's biggest questions. And now here's our interview with Sabina Hassenfelder. All right, so we're here with Sabina Hassenfelder. Welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, so I've heard you say that you got into science from reading science fiction. So tell us about that. Yes, that's right. Um, when I was a teenager, I was very interested in science fiction, and I was fascinated by all the technology that they had and wanted to find out how much of this is fiction and how much of it is science. And so I, naturally, I started <laughs> reading up on quantum mechanics and uh, um, astrophysics and uh, rocket science, actually literal rocket science. I was very interested in that for some time. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's maybe not so surprising that I uh, ended up in physics. <laughs> hmm. So how much of it did turned out to be science and how much of it turned out to be fi- probably a lot of fiction, I'm guessing? Yeah, well, um, a lot of the stuff you find in science fiction is, is uh, at least in my interpretation, basically an extrapolation of what we know already. So if you look at all those fancy space drives that they're talking about, like hyperdrives, uh, warp drives, um, wormholes, all that kind of stuff, they kind of have a footing in in the well-established theories, uh, but then they add an extra element of speculation on top of it. Uh, for example, you, you can actually go through those extra dimensions um, or you can somehow make warp drives work by some kind of fancy shield or God knows what, hmm. um, or wormholes are actually there somewhere in, inside black holes uh, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. It's funny because, you know, my dad's a physicist and he actually got interested in it because he wanted he first he wanted to be a science fiction writer. And so he thought that physics would be a good background for a science fiction writer. And then he just became a physicist and never wrote any science fiction. But he sort of transmitted that that love of science fiction to me. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So do you remember like what kind of science fiction did you start out reading? Like what got you into it? Oh yeah, um, I, it was. Uh, I, I'm afraid it's a German series which was quite well known in Germany at the time. It's called Perry Roden. It's it's very similar to Star Trek. Um, it, it, you know, it has kind of some main characters, and you follow them for thousands of years, literally. Um, and and so it has it has a lot of the the same features and uh, except that uh, you know it, the the techno- technology works a little bit differently. And um, other than that, I was reading um, everything that was really cheap because I didn't have a lot of money. So uh, you know they always had these um, slightly damaged books that they were selling off for one Deutschmark. <laughs> at the time, uh, you know, on this little table in the back. And uh, this is the stuff that I 
read um a lot of which was like uh, let's be honest really really crappy <laughs> it was like really badly written and at some point you know you realize that the the big ideas they always uh, they always come back like is stuff like um like the bog that you have in in um in star trek uh, right these kind of uh, a group of connected consciousness that sees being you human in some sense um faster than light travel of course um there's always something with quantum quantum is always good for something <laughs> uh, and stuff like this so were these most was it mostly american science fiction you were reading or was it a lot of were there a lot of other german science fiction that you were reading um i i well so so the Perry Roden series despite the american name and if i remember correctly i think the the uh protagonist is actually supposedly american it's it's a german series um um but the other stuff i can't really remember i i read a lot of the classics like um Stanislav Lem and uh Asimov and uh, stuff like this um uh, yeah, and Clark, of course. Um, yeah, so it, it kind of really <laughs> everything, basically. Mm. I mean, in your book, you mentioned the story by Isaac Asimov called "The Last Question." So, is that a a favorite? Yeah, story it, it's yours, one or? of the things I've I've always loved this story. It, it just, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, it's it's very um, spot onto the stuff that I, that has always fascinated me about physics. Um, you know, this this big question like. Does the universe eventually run out into complete darkness, and that's the end of the story, or is there more that we can do with science? Yeah, I'll say for people who haven't read the story, basically the premise is that the the there's this um, supercomputer, and it keeps being asked, "Is entropy inevitable?" Basically, and it always says, uh, "Not enough data to answer the question," or something, and then eventually the universe does run out, and finally the computer says you know, has has collected enough data to answer the question and says, let there be light. And it turns out that this computer is basically now God and is starting the universe up again. So, uh, yeah, I can see how that would appear because a lot of, a lot of your book deals with sort of those sorts of themes. So I can see how that story would appeal to you. Yeah. Um, it's also, um, especially this question of entropy is something that, um, I, I've, I've been interested in for a long time. I don't really trust the, the definition of entropy that, that is currently being used in cosmology. So, I mean, entropy is all well and fine if you're talking about thermodynamics and, you know, steam engines and <laughs> the, all those topics that it was, originally invented for but when you're talking about the entire universe um i think it doesn't really work all that well to begin with we don't really know what's the entropy um associated with gravity or with uh, space time itself it's like one of those big unsolved uh problems but also entropy is a very uh, how do i put this an anthropomorphic um quantity um if 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 you take it seriously it tells us about um well, the way that it's typically phrased is that entropy tells you something about the the decrease of order or the increase of disorder but this is like really from our perspective like what what we think is disorderly um and I think that if you were not to use this human-centric notion of order and disorder, um, you would get a completely different notion of entropy. And that brings up the question like, um, why is any one of them more tenable than any other? To which I don't have an answer, but it's something that I've pushed around in my head for some time. Right. So I was wondering this. So, so but you, you do think that the universe will kind of wind down in the end that human civilization couldn't go on forever because the the stars will burn out and you know the universe will keep expanding until there's just every there's just nothing much going on or well that's what the current uh scientific consensus is so to say um as i said i'm very skeptic of i'm very skeptical that this conclusion is correct because i don't trust this notion of entropy 
Um, so, uh, no, I, I actually don't think that this is what's going to happen, but I, I don't really have any particular theory <laughs> to put forward <laughs> or something. It, it's just, you know, one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I'm not really sure that this argument actually holds water. So, so you think there's some chance that human civilization could continue indefinitely into the future for like hundreds of billions of years or something? Yeah. I do I do think so. I think there's just too much that we don't really understand about uh, space and time and entropy in particular, gravity uh, and, 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 and so on uh, to definitely make this statement. I, I don't think the second law of thermodynamics is as fundamental as a lot of physicists think it is. Okay, well, that's, that's encouraging. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, I was worried about that. Yeah, I don't think we're, we're going to live to see it. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering, though, when you said basically it's, it's sort of, you know, the way we were evolved to sort of see, see entropy in this particular way, it was making me wonder if you, you think we might, there might be aliens or AI or something that would have a different perception of entropy and would, would not share that, that anthropomorphic view that we have. Uh, yes, indeed. So I, I don't know about AI, but uh, one of the common themes uh, in science fiction is that uh, you fairly often have this disembodied cosmic consciousness, uh, which also comes up in the uh, Asimov story um, at, at the at the very end. And um, if, if you think about this for a moment, uh, if you have something that's very distributed, let's just say in the entire universe or something. Um, it would have a completely different perception of what is ordered and what is not ordered. So um, for, su for such a being, uh, entropy could just be something completely different. Um, so I don't know how this relates to AI. I mean, all the AI that we know um, it has been built by humans. So in, in some sense, uh, they're not all that different from us. <laughs> you know, we, we, we build them as, as a little compact objects uh, that sit uh, in a laboratory uh, in uh, in a computer if, if you wish um, and I, I don't think um, there's much to find at least at the moment uh, but I mean if there are some kind of um, alien beings um, who are not bound to bodies in in one way or the or another like we are um, it I think it's it's conceivable that they would have a different notion of entropy. I don't know if you saw the the movie Arrival. It's based on a Ted Chiang story called Story of Your Life. But in that, there are these aliens and they perceive time differently. They basically perceive all of time at once. And um, and there's this woman, the scientist or linguist or something, and she learns their language. And then she, in the process of learning their language, she learns to perceive time the way that they do. And I was just curious, what do you think about that idea of, of aliens who would perceive, you know, who would not be moored in the in a in a specific present but would kind of like experience all of time at once so uh, I'm, I'm afraid i don't know the movie but um yeah that's it's a very interesting idea um it, of course this is very strongly linked with um the notion of entropy because um at least the way that the argument currently goes uh, the reason that we have this perception of the present moment being special is that entropy increases at least for us um, so yeah, I, I guess if, if there were any such aliens, they would, they would necessarily have to have a different notion of entropy. Because in some sense, you know, we use entropy to, to define the error of time. Um, why is the past different from the future? And why does there seem to be a boundary between the, the two? Why do we only have a memory of the past, uh, and not of the future? And so to overcome this, you, you kind of have to change something about this notion of entropy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so arrival. That was one I, I wanted. I was curious if you'd seen. And the other one, I don't know. This is a little more obscure, so maybe you haven't seen it. But there was this TV show called Devs. It was uh, Alex Garland's. Um, he's one of my favorite directors. But the, the premise is that there's this Silicon Valley company, and they've developed this algorithm, basically, which predicts the future uh, perfectly. And since, um, you know, causality is deterministic and everything, like. Uh, everyone who's seen this simulation running knows all these horrible things are going to happen, but they're completely helpless to to do anything because it's always right to to change it. Um, so uh, I don't know if you've seen that or if you uh, have any thoughts about that. 
I do. You know, I'm I, I'm totally hopeless with movies <laughs> and TV shows and everything. I don't watch anything. The only occasion that I ever got to watch movies was on a plane, you know, a long distance flight overseas, which I haven't been on <laughs> for <laughs> for you know since pre pre COVID times. Uh, so uh, you could throw all kinds of movies at me, and I would always say, oh, "Sorry, I haven't seen this. Sorry, I haven't <laughs> seen this." <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, so, um, th th that's a very interesting idea, um, which uh, in, in my book, I also briefly, um, a touch on this, um, uh, if this will actually be possible, can you actually predict, um, the future? It's kind of depressing, right? Um, yeah. so, <laughs> um, yeah, um, so, but, but this brings to my mind, I recently read, um, uh, graphic novel like with cartoons and stuff uh which um was based on the same idea and it's it, it'll be published next year i think it's called the phantom scientist i understand it's a translation from french and it has the same idea there's there's some guy who's um developing computer code that can predict the future including his own future and th that of his uh, collaborators. Um, <laughs> and then in the end, everything goes badly wrong. <laughs> but, um, uh, so, so this is the idea. Uh, it's certainly in intriguing. Um, is it, is it possible? I mean, there's always this argument that, um, has been put forward many times that if you have, um, a prediction for, for a system in which, um, some parts know of the prediction, then they can act so that the prediction doesn't come true. Um, and I think that's actually correct. Um, th the problem is that, um, it, it's basically, um, it's an open system, right? So you're, you're, you're inputting the information, um, from your, computer code which, which made the prediction into the human which then alters the initial condition that the prediction was based on um and and so uh, for the complete system you can't really make a prediction uh if you if you do it this way well but i think the thing is if if the simulation is modeling everything then it's modeling and taking into account the fact that the humans are going to find out about the predictions and and that that's going to alter the course of the future and, and so on i mean like cuz yeah but but uh, hang on hang on Th yeah, this yeah. this creates a feedback loop which might not converge you know what i mean there just might not be uh, a prediction coming out of this requirement the, the simplest example is this, uh, is this idea that, um, you know, I, I make you a simple offer. You know, you either eat, the, eat the, the marshmallow or you don't. Um, and, uh, I, I make a prediction, which is you take it or you, you don't take it. And, uh, you know, my prediction, you can do the opposite. Um, so, um, you, you can iterate this as often as you want, but the prediction will never fit to what you actually do. Well, because uh, in the book, you talk a lot about free will and, and, and your constant refrain that you have is you say, you know, the future is fixed aside from random quantum events that we can't influence. And so, I mean, if the future is, is basically fixed, then presumably it could be yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird to think about, but uh... yeah, yeah. So so what you could do is uh, you could take the your prediction device and the human and the marshmallow and whatever, <laughs> and put put this together in a box, which is a closed system, and then you can make a prediction for that. Mm -hmm. So so this would work. Um, but what I'm saying, what what doesn't necessarily work. I mean, there are cases where where it does work because you just do what what the prediction says you do okay so so then there is no um there's no inconsistency uh but um if you give the prediction for what a person will do to the person then the person can do something else based on this input uh and and so it, it creates an inconsistency uh, there's nothing scientifically wrong with it uh th what happens is just that the in, the initial condition that you used to base the prediction on is not the correct one because you hadn't taken into account the prediction uh, that the prediction is, is handed on to the human. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think that it, 
Do you think I'm just from reading your book? Do you think that the concept of free will is just basically an incoherent concept? I mean, can you imagine any hypothetical intelligence or universe where where you would say that there actually is free will, or is just like causality just a basic fact of any possible reality? And as long as you have causality, you're never going to have free will. I can imagine it, yes, uh, but I, uh, for all I know, it's not realized in the laws of nature that um, we have found so far. So, um, what, what one possibility? So, the, the basic reason that I find it hard to make sense of free will, um, given what we know about the laws of nature, is that. Um, the laws for the microscopic constituents, for all we know, um, give rise to the behavior of macroscopic beings. Uh, or to, you know, to phrase this in a, in a simpler way, uh, you're made of particles and we know what the particles do. Therefore, at least theoretically, in principle, we know what you're going to do up to those random quantum events. And that's basically it. And that seems to be how the laws of nature work in our universe. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it, uh, the laws of nature, it could be different than that. And uh, one way that they could be different is that this derivation of the macroscopic um, behavior uh, just fails at some point. So basically, if you, to, to give you a simple example, if you get to objects that are beyond a certain size, because you just can no longer calculate what, what, what they do. And what would happen is that you would have to introduce an entirely new um, set of laws on this macroscopic level. Uh, and that might um, allow you to actually reasonably define something that you could call free will. But as I said, for all we, for all we know, the laws of nature in our universe don't seem to have that property. Mm-hmm. But so, so even in this hypothetical universe where you couldn't predict what the macroscopic object was going to, or character or whatever was going to do from the behavior of the particles, wouldn't all the inputs still be causal i mean like like where would the you know where would the the character have the ability to to not do something that was defined by something that had happened earlier in time you know what i mean I don't know if that oh, you, you're asking like, what would the law look like for the macroscopic whatever? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We don't live in this universe. Um, so, I mean, one possibility that I've, uh, you know, pulled out of a hat at some point, uh, like 10 years ago or something, is that you can have um, a kind of an information reservoir that doesn't reside inside of time. So basically, everyone, every time you come on, you come to a branching point, you, um, you pull on this reservoir, uh, outside of time to make your decision. And that would not be, um, determined by the past because it's not, it's not in time. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, well, but, I, so, so, but, but it's just, you know, it's just, it's, it's really completely made up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I don't know, wouldn't the thing, I don't know what, it, what, what does that mean for something to be outside of, I mean, it would still be, have caught, something would have caused it. This is maybe getting too too abstract and philosophical, but it, it did make, make yeah me yeah right. Um, so yeah, um, this this would get us into a long discussion about what we mean by cause to begin with, because yeah. um, there there are at least two <laughs> different ways that people talk about cause. Um, and I'm at, at the moment, I'm not sure which way you use the word. So, um, I, when I talk about free will, I don't, I don't talk about causes at all. I, I talk about determinism. Like what, what is determined by the past? Okay. Well, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should move on to another subject. And, but I mean, that's, <laughs> that's interesting that, you know, at least in theory, you think that we could have, you know, some sort of, there could be some parallel universe with different laws that, that that would have but not in you don't think in our universe even no matter what the biology was no matter what what the ai was or anything like that you don't think there could be any real free will in our in our universe 
Well, you know, it's always possible that we find out something about the something new about the laws of nature that changes the story. Um, so what I'm saying is that according to all we presently know about the laws of nature, free will just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I can't reasonably rule out that this is going to change at some point in the future. Hmm. One of the um, ideas in the book I thought was really interesting is this idea that we could maybe create our own universe in a lab that we would sort of kick it off and it would instantly blink out of existence, but it would be expanding off in some other dimension or something. Um, and I guess creating billions of stars and worlds and, and all that. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't blink out of existence. It would just lose connection to our universe. So we would no longer be able to communicate with it. Uh and yeah, so it's it's one of the one of the consequences um of the theories that we believe describe how our universe was created. Um so if those theories are correct, which is a pretty big if. Okay, I, I want to point this out. Then there is uh, nothing in principle that would prevent us from also creating a universe. I think the um, when I when I talked about this the first time, people thought I was kidding <laughs> because I'm I'm kind of known to always say no, this is bullshit. You can't do it. <laughs> but in this case, uh, it's actually correct, and I think the. The reason that people get confused about it is that, um, naively, it seems you need a huge amount of mass or energy, um, to create a universe because where does all this stuff come from? Um, and, uh, this just isn't necessary in Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, the reason is that if you have an expanding space time, it, it basically creates its own energy. So energy is not it's not conserved. It, it's as simple as that. And you can, you can estimate, and people have done that, and I have all the references in the book, um, how much, how much mass you'd need to create uh, a new universe. And it turns out to be something like 10 kilograms. <laughs> so that's, that's not all that much, uh, except that you have to bring this, uh, those 10 kilograms into a state that is very similar to the conditions in, um, the early universe, which means you have to, um, heat it up to dramatically high temperatures with, which we just currently can't do. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar. There's a, a movement now called effective altruism, where the idea is, you know, rather than just spending money on charity and philanthropy willy nilly, we should be doing a sort of utilitarian calculation of what charities or whatever benefit the most, you know, do the most good for the most people. And and so I sort of, you know, until so like, you know, spending mosquito, you know, money on mosquito nets to prevent malaria might be the best use of your money uh, rather than something else. So that was kind of making me think, well, maybe creating new universes would actually be the most philanthropic, charitable thing you could do, right? Because for however much it costs to create a new universe, you know, you're you're creating trillions of planets and lives and, and everything. So maybe we should be directing a lot of... Uh, time and energy toward that yeah well the problem i have with those arguments and i i've read about them um is that you you have to think about the the opportunity cost like if we if we were to do something like this i mean it's leaving aside that our technology just can't do it uh suppose we we'd spend a lot of time uh trying to make our own universe uh but eventually fail um all that money was not spent on making <laughs> living beings in this present world better off so so you're not in favor of uh well to some to to some extent but um you know you have to you have i think you have to take into account how speculative the idea is uh that you're running after and uh in in the case of something that's as speculative as making a new universe uh i would say that the risk is just way too high that you're going to waste all that money uh, it, it'd be better to spend it on something that we, um, you know, are um, a little bit more certain will actually benefit people. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, so do you think, I mean, one of the things I thought was in terms of like universes being created and everything, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the book of 
you know, is our universe fine-tuned and is it fine-tuned for like number of black holes or, um, you know, for the existence of life or, um, you know, or for the existence of com- computation, which I thought was interesting, which kind of, as a science fiction fan, kind of made me wonder, well, is it possible that AIs created our universe to be particularly uh, fertile ground for AIs to arise? And the fact that we exist is just sort of a, a byproduct uh, of, of, but the actual goal was to create computation. So I was just curious what you what you think about that idea. Well, those are all interesting ideas, um, and you know, I, I I love speculating about them. But I, I think one has to be careful to not confuse them uh, with with science, um, because there's, um, I mean, if you throw out an idea like maybe our universe was created by some AI uh, to maximize computation, how would you ever how would you ever test this? Uh, I, I can't think of any way to test it. It, it, it sounds to me like um, you know a very technocentric type uh, of religion uh, and there's there's nothing wrong with it um but it's not really scientific so so i would say oh you know if you, you have fun talking about this kind of stuff it's fine with me um but don't pretend it has, it's got something to do with uh physics uh-huh um yeah because that's something you talk about a lot in the book is i guess you feel like a lot of scientists have been kind of overly enthusiastic about talking about ideas like like the multiverse or the simulation hypothesis without i guess giving a emphatic enough disclaimer that this is just sort of wild speculation is that is that a fair summary of of your argument yes um I, though i have to i have to clarify that i think in in many cases they're not fully aware of what, what they're doing i think there's a certain uh, lack of philosophical underpinning that's driving this, especially when it comes to the multiverse. Um, I, I do know quite a lot of cosmologists and uh, astrophysicists who actually believe that other universes uh, are real. And uh, I think it's a misunderstanding of how much mathematics can possibly do for us. Uh, so they, they seem to have this idea that just because um, we can write down the mathematics for it, and some of that mathematics agrees with what we observe. Therefore, everything else in that mathematics must also be real. Um, that's just not a conclusion that the mathematics actually um, allows. You know, it's, it's not a scientific argument. Um, so I, I don't want. I mean, there there are certainly some people who have been pushing this line a little bit too far, probably deliberately because it sells and so on. But I think for most of them, I think they're genuinely confused. Mm-hmm. But so you think uh, would it would it sort of satisfy your criticism if they were just to add a more emphatic disclaimer like this is just a theory we have no experimental evidence to back it up it's fun to talk about but um you know i don't it's it's not really science in the strictest sense like is is, is it just a disclaimer like that you want or do they need to like is there anything else you think that they should be doing to not yeah, uh, no, I, uh, that's basically it. You know, if if they were just to say, look, uh, people, we we believe in this, but it isn't really science. Um, I, I, that'd be fine uh, because uh, you know what what happens. I think is that um, people who are not physicists they understand just fine that there is that this isn't science because not only is there no evidence for the existence of other universes. There will never be any evidence. It's an untestable hypothesis. And uh, most people <laughs> know enough about the philosophy of science to understand what the problem is with this. And now if you have scientists going around and talking about this as if it was science, I think it just erodes trust in science in general. And, and I think that's a very bad thing. So um, if if they were just more honest about, look, this is a metaphysical assumption. It's not strictly um, it's not strictly scientific. Um, there's no empirical evidence, and there will never be uh, empirical evidence. But we believe it anyway because I don't know. We trust our mathematics or whatever their reason is. Um, that'd be fine with me. I mean, I just you know uh, a year or two ago, I interviewed Katie Mack, 
And I just went back and listened to my interview with her. And she was saying, this is very, I think, a real long shot. But she was saying that she thought that there was some possibility, like a non-zero possibility, that we might get signals from other universes with gravity. I don't know what you think about that. But is that just generally agreed among scientists? You think that there's like no possible evidence for uh, other universes that could ever possibly be detected? Or is is there some disagreement about that? Well, there are some cosmologists who have made up um, particular models for the multiverse uh, in which other universes could collide with our own or our, our universe could be entangled with another universe. And in those cases, uh, you can come up with observable predictions. Uh, and, well, people have looked for the signatures of those other universes and they haven't found any. So to the extent that those ideas were falsifiable, they have been falsified. Now, um, you can always make up other models for that kind of thing, um, which is kind of a somewhat, it's, it's a somewhat different philosophical problem that physicists run uh, into there, where they just, um, you know, invent mathematics and proclaim it's, it's, it's somehow testable. Um, and so, I, I think all those alleged predictions are rubbish, but it's for it's for a different reason than uh, what what I pre- what I was previously talking about, which are those uh, unobservable multiverses. It's basically that you're just guessing something. There's there's no there's no reason why this guesswork uh, should be correct. It's it's just not a scientific method of producing a new model. So that to me is absolutely unsurprising that that the that those um ideas are just falsified one after the other. Mm-hmm. I mean is it not part of like do you consider it part of this like sort of out there thought experiments to be part of the scientific method ever. I mean, like, I, I, obviously, I'm not a physicist, but you know, like, like Einstein would think, like, oh, if I was on a train traveling at the speed of light, and I like looked, what would I, see? you know, like stuff like that, like that. Sometimes, like thinking about really outlandish things leads you to real scientific insight. Yeah, uh, certainly, uh, thought experiments uh, are all fine. This isn't the problem. The problem is the thing that they are trying to test. Um, so, so there, there was no, there, there was absolutely no reason why this should actually describe reality. And there are literally infinitely many mathematical ideas you can write down and that you can proclaim, uh, might describe reality and you could go and test them. But what do we learn from this? Nothing really. Hmm. <laughs> Um, what do you make of, I mean, you mentioned in the book, like with the simulation hypothesis, which is that the idea that we might be living in a computer simulation, you talk about people like Elon Musk and Neil deGrasse Tyson saying that they think there's a better than 50% chance that that's true. Like, what do you, what do you make of that? Well, it's it's one of those um, ideas where I'd say, you know, if you want to discuss them on the level of uh, philosophy or maybe over a glass of wine <laughs> at dinner because it's fun to talk about, it's all fine with me. I get a problem if they argue that it that it's based on on a scientific argument, which is not the case. And those arguments for the simulation hypothesis, in all forms that I've uh, seen them, they always rely on some statements about how the fundamental laws of nature work. And that's territory of physics. Um, So I feel like I have something to say about it. They implicitly assume that it's kind of simple to reproduce all the observations that we have made in, in the, in the entire universe, everything from general relativity and quantum mechanics, uh, and so on and so forth by an algorithm that you can put on a computer. And I would really like to see this algorithm because it would be a theory of everything. And uh, last time I looked, we didn't have one. So how, how do they think they're going to do it? And there's also a lot of, a lot of hand waving and fudging going on when, when they're talking about the computational capacity 
So it's, it's one of the obvious problems that you uh, run into is that if you uh, create a universe with conscious beings uh, inside and those conscious beings create uh, universes with conscious beings and so on and so forth, then you run out of computational capacity really, really quickly. So those arguments that we live in a computer simulation, they usually have some kind of assumption that um, if there's some part of the universe where no one's looking – <laughs> then you don't really have to do the entire calculation. You only have to fill it in if someone's trying to measure something. And now this, this brings up the question, like, how do you know when someone is looking at a particular piece of the universe? How are you going to, to do this reduction? And there are lots of other problems. For, for example, um, if, if you look at uh, weather or climate models, um, those are chaotic systems. And uh, to make matters worse, if you look at the Navier-Stokes equation that is being used for um, for the atmosphere, but also for um, ocean currents uh, and, and so on and so forth, um, this equation uh, is very, very difficult to put on a computer because it has this weird property that it doesn't care about um, scales. So we, we, we say it's scale invariant, uh, and, and this is why um, you have these um, la- large and small tur- turbulence uh, turbulences. Um, so w- what happens if you put it on uh, any kind of grid on a computer is that you're cutting off part of this complexity. And um, this has the result that the computer simulation does not agree with reality very well. And this is like a huge unsolved problem that people cope with in reality every time they make a weather forecast. And it's one of those problems that people who talk about the um, simulation hypothesis uh, just completely ignore, like, like they've never heard of chaos. Right. I mean, it, it seems to me just like from a science fiction perspective, if, if you had a simulation and you were in charge of it, you would have basically complete control over everyone in it. It would be like, you know, like you mentioned the movie Dark City, where people wake up every morning and there's somebody completely different because they've, you know, the, the, the parameters of the simulation have been changed overnight and they're not aware of it. And so it, it, it seems like you could have just sort of a rough approximation of reality. And anytime somebody noticed, you could just like wipe their memory and roll back the clock 24 hours and have it go so that they wouldn't notice it, you know, like, um, like with World of Warcraft or something, if there's a big bug, sometimes they'll just like roll the whole thing back 24 hours to, to how things were then. Uh, it's cause it's, it's easier to do that than to try to correct it after it's already gone wrong. So it just seems like, you know, if you were inside a simulation where you might be at the mercy of super intelligent AIs or like whatever, uh, you know, you, you would be so manipulable that, you know, it would be hard to ever uh, know whether you were in a simulation or not. Yeah, but again, I would like to ask you, like, how does it work in practice? So you, you've just invented a programmer who, um, you know, looks at, I don't know, several billion conscious beings and figures out uh, if one of them has noticed something that doesn't quite fit together and then rolls back the whole the simulation by 24 hours or something like this. It doesn't seem particularly feasible. You know, at the very least, I would like to know how how, how is it being implemented? So you see what I'm saying is that on, on, on a vague storytelling level, like the way that you just did it, it's all fine with me. And, and I, you know, I, I like speculating about this kind of thing as well. Uh, but I don't think there's that it's actually based on science. So if people go and, uh, and, and spit out numbers, like I think there's a 50% chance we're living in a simulation. I'm, I'm not having it, you know, as, as a physicist who has to, uh, think about how you actually simulate the reality that we observe on a computer. I, I'm telling you, it's, it's not easy and it's not a problem that you can just sweep under the rock. So, so do you think the chances we're living in a simulation are zero or do you think it's not calculable or is it non-zero but very low or? I don't know. I would say the error bars are so large on that kind of thing. There's no scientific statement that you can make about it. Mm-hmm. So I guess the answer is we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I guess one thing I thought was kind of cool was this, uh, you know, there's these sort of things in science fiction that you have sometimes that, you know, people predicted in the 50s or whatever, like jetpacks and flying cars and stuff that, that never seemed to come true. But uh, and, and I'm at the point now where I don't really expect them to ever come true in my lifetime. But you actually mentioned weather control is one of these things. And you say, you know, like that we actually have a pretty good idea of how we could, say, interrupt a, a hurricane before it gets really big and destructive. And we just can't currently uh our prediction models currently aren't good enough to uh to actually do that but it seems like maybe it's not too far beyond the realm of possibility that we might be able to to do that if the prediction models keep getting better and better is that i don't know if if i is that right would you do you agree with that uh yeah but uh, before i talk about weather control um have you have you watched the videos from this british company with the jetpacks I'm not sure which one which one you're talking. I've watched, uh, I've watched uh, a lot uh, of jetpack uh, videos. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, I've forgotten the name, but I was really impressed by those. It's, it's the guys who are flying over the um, uh, Jesus, what's it called? The uh, it's it's a national park in uh, in the UK. Uh, something with lake, the Lake District. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, because the the problem with them is that like they look really cool, but then you can only fly for like ten or fifteen minutes or something. So it's yeah, not yeah, that yeah, yeah, right. But, it's, but they're, it's they're pretty something cool. like this. But yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I was impressed how how well it worked. Uh, um, yeah. Um, also, uh, nice scenery, but yeah, completely mm-hmm. off topic. So the thing with the weather control, uh, this was an offspin of a video that I made about um, cloud seeding and can we stop hurricanes? And uh, I found out that it's actually pretty well understood how hurricanes form. And uh, a lot of efforts have been made um, to stop them. And th- th- the big showstopper is that at the moment, when uh, we know what kind of cloud wind configuration is with very high probability going to turn into a hurricane, it's too large to do something about it. And we're talking about large, like these things are really huge. And there's stuff you can do. And this is something that people have looked at, for example, like uh, putting a a particular type of biodegradable oil on the water. Why does it, why does it stop a hurricane? Because the way that the hurricane grows large is that um, the water uh, is warm and evaporates and it gets pulled upwards. Um, which drives, um, the circulation of the thing. So it's a positive feedback loop that makes the thing bigger and bigger. And there's more and more moist, moist air, uh, going, going around in a circle. So if, if you put some kind of oil on the surface of the water, it stops the evaporation. The whole thing just, uh, you know, uh, the whole cycle stops, uh, working and the hurricane, um, dissolves into, um, well, wet air, basically. Um, but the problem is that, um, you would have to cover a huge area, surface area of the water, which is completely impractical. Um, but if you could actually, uh, predict what's going to turn into a hurricane when they're much smaller, uh, it, it might, it might be feasible. And, um, I've, I've, I've talked to meteorologists and climate scientists who, who have looked into this kind of thing. Uh, and, and, and it's, it seems to be the case for other situations too. Like, uh, in principle, it's known how you could influence certain types of weather phenomena. Um, but the problem is that the, that the predictions aren't, aren't good enough at the moment. And, um, you know what? I'm, I'm actually pretty sure that we will see more and more weather control in the near future. For example, this issue with the, um, with the cloud seeding. So you make, um, water rain off, um, earlier from the clouds than it, than it would normally be the case. It's going to become a really big, issue uh when droughts become more common because because every country will try to make clouds rain off over their territory and you know this is going to cause a lot of international problems i don't see i didn't watch that that video so i'm not sure if you talked about this or not but um one of the interviews i did years ago it was a book about kurt vonnegut and his brother mm-hmm. and his brother was a scientist who was actually doing experiments with cloud seeding to make it rain for farmers 
and um it actually worked pretty well like it didn't work well enough to really be worth doing it but but it, it you know he he was having some success with it so uh and it's interesting because how that influenced um like Kurt Vonnegut's book um Cat's Cradle and stuff like that was was really interesting yeah it it's right it actually works um so um and uh, the Chinese are investing pretty heavily uh in in cloud seeding uh and at least the last time I looked at it they had a pretty big program uh running on it and if they're starting uh, to do it then other countries pretty much will have to do it too and um <laughs> at this point we're already deep into trouble I guess yeah I also really want to ask you, so uh, within the last year or two, we reviewed Ursula Gwynn's novel, The Dispossessed, and mm-hmm. a big plot point in that is the invention of this device called the Ansible, which allows instantaneous, you know, like faster than light communication. And I was just wondering what you thought about that idea, because you, you talk about, you, you're talking about, in the book, you talk about like the idea that the whole universe is a giant mind and that you could theoretically have communication faster than light. But then you also say a lot of people will talk about quantum entanglement as a means for faster than light communication. And you say that that's, that's not happening. Um, so I'm just curious, do you think that humans, like what, what would you say the chances are that humans will ever be able to send messages faster than light? I think the chances are pretty good, but it's uh, probably not going to be with entanglement uh, because, um, I mean, you can mathematically prove that you can't send information faster than the speed of light uh, with quantum entanglement. So uh, quantum entanglement is, it's a non-local correlation, but it's locally created. So you can't actually send send information with it. But um, I, I think that um physicists are a little bit too fast throwing out faster than light um communication because there's a lot that we don't understand about locality so we we briefly talked about wormholes um earlier and so i i'm not a big fan of big wormholes um you know where you could uh, go in on one end and come out on the other end um, but if space time has some kind of quantum structure and, um, pretty much all physicists I know believe that it has, um, so for which we would need this theory of quantum gravity, uh, which we still don't have and so on. Um, it's quite conceivably the case that it would not respect the notion of locality that we enjoy in the macroscopic world. So um, on this microscopic quantum level, when uh, you're taking into account the quantum properties of space and time, distance may just completely lose meaning. And um, I, I find it quite conceivably possible that this will allow to send information faster than light. Because in the book, you say uh, you're talking about these kind of like mini wormhole things. And you say these non-local connections would be too small for us or even elementary particles to go through. So like what what would you send through uh, to send it? That's right. So we basically know this already because otherwise we'd have seen it. (laughs) So every once in a while, there's something vanishing (laughs) into nothing. (laughs) We would probably have noticed uh but um i mean you have to you have to keep in mind that the elementary particles that uh we have seen so far so those are the smallest things that we have ever measured it's stuff like the uh, quarks and and so on that we see at the large hadron collider they're still huge compared to the size that we believe those quantum fluctuations of space and time uh, would have, which would be at the Planck scale. So there's, there's still like 20 orders of magnitude in between. Um, and yeah, so, so what would you send through? Well, well the geometry of space time is, uh, itself carries information. And so we, we don't normally think about this, but, uh, gravitational waves are, are basically an example for this. So this is a, it's a deformation of space time itself. That, um, we, when it arrives on Earth, we convert it into a message that we can read out in terms of, uh, material, basically, I mean, massive, massive objects, the normal particles that we deal with, uh, in terms of detectors. Cause what, I, and you, you, you mentioned this in the book, but what I had always heard is that you, you wouldn't be able to send information faster than the speed of light because it would violate causality. Cause then you could get into situations where the information was received before being sent and stuff like that. And you, I think you said in the book that it, this, this wouldn't viol- violate causality, but I'm not sure 
I followed the argument, but is there, I don't know if well, it's something so, you could summarize so, quickly. But. What, I, what I write in the book is that it's uh, compatible with Einstein's theories. Uh, and the reason I write this is that uh, I, I don't know why, but a lot of people seem to think that Einstein's theory forbids faster than light travel or exchange of information. It's not the case. Uh, what Einstein's theory tells you is if you have something that's slower than uh, the speed of light, you, you can't accelerate it to, um, a, a speed that's faster than light, uh, basically because it would take an infinite amount of energy. But it doesn't a priori forbid, uh, anything to travel faster than, uh, the speed of light. You still have potentially problems, uh, with causality. There are scenarios that you can make up, uh, where it would happen, uh, but they, those are fairly easy to get rid of, uh, just by saying, well, it can't happen. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> the, the only, uh, faster than light signaling that you, uh, can do is that which does not lead to causality uh, paradoxa. And the interesting thing is that those situations exist and it's actually not it's it's not difficult to to get it done simply because um in in Einstein's theory of general relativity so not not the special one um we do have uh for better or worse um a preferred frame that's what it called it would be the rest frame of the cosmic microwave background that that's what people usually uh use could be a slightly different frame but it doesn't really matter so what this frame does for you um it tells you what's forward in time and what's backward in time uh, by uh, by the way this brings us back to this issue of entropy um which is also believed to define an, an error of time and how those two belong together is a kind of an unsolved problem uh, but as a matter of fact, we do have an error of time uh, in our universe, like we experience it, uh, we observe it. Um, and you can use this error of time uh, to say, well, you can only send information faster than light if it goes forward in time and not backward in time. Yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah, this has been a really encouraging conversation. I mean, that, uh, you know, faster than light communication might be possible. Uh, the universe might not end. Uh <laughs> You know, uh, sure. it, this makes me so happy. You won't believe this because this is exactly what I was hoping to achieve with the book. You know, I was trying to say, you know, physics isn't just something that tells you stuff that you can't do. It sometimes opens your mind to new things that we might possibly one day be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, this, this has been a big, uh, big uh, up, <laughs> brought up my mood a lot. Um, all right, we're almost out of time. I guess, um, I guess just the final thing maybe I'll ask you about is you say that, um, you think that, that science could learn from religion, that people need communities and that scientific events and, you know, and communities and things should, should be more social and make, making more connections between people and stuff. And I, I agree with that because I go to a lot of, uh, uh, lectures and things. And then you just kind of sit in the audience and then you leave and you never meet anyone else there, uh, except uh, maybe, uh, under unusual circumstances or something, but uh, I'm just curious if you could talk about how do you think that science could be more uh, more community focused? Yeah, that's right. I I think that science is is really not very well integrate integrated in uh, people's everyday life in, in a way that um, the church religion does very well. Like they they care about people, like they bring them together, they organize events, uh, and of course people like it. And when I was at Perimeter Institute in Canada. They had uh, a weekly public lecture, which it, it was on the weekend. So at, at a time when, um, uh, people could actually come and not, not during work hours. And afterwards there was, uh, there was a, a brunch that everyone would have together. And, um, I, I know that the people, um, who would attend those lectures, they, they would go there regularly and uh, they would appreciate the opportunity to just sit together and talk with other people who were interested in, in the same things. And this is something I think that scientists take for granted. Like we have, we have all our friends and colleagues that we, uh, talk to about the stuff that we're interested in. Uh, but, um, it's not the case for everybody else. Some people who are interested in, I don't know, quantum mechanics. Maybe they don't know anyone else who's interested in quantum mechanics. And to some extent, there are online communities, uh, which fulfill this task. Ask now, uh, but but of course uh, it, it's still better to actually uh, meet with people in person. Uh, and I think that science science could be uh, so much better at doing this than than it currently is. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And yeah, if anyone listening to this is involved in organizing events of this kind, yeah, definitely it would be great if there were more opportunities for people, for attendees to uh, to socialize with each other. Uh, I think that would be really that'd be really great. Um, all right. So yes, yeah, so why, uh, why don't we start wrapping this up? Do you have any just any other final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about? Um. Pfft. No, not really. <laughs> oh, maybe since we were talking about the multiverse at the very beginning, I have a video coming up about this in uh, two weeks. So not uh, tomorrow, but on September 10th, where I go through those arguments uh, and explain it in a little bit more detail than I did now. Okay, cool. Yeah, so everyone. Oh, I, I, I guess I could mention your uh, your YouTube channel. It's called Science Without the Gobbledygook. So uh, everyone can keep an eye out for that uh, that video. And so we've been speaking with Sabina Hassenfelter about her new book, Existential Physics. So Sabina, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you so much. Wonderful to talk to you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Sabina Hassenfelter for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit DavidBarrKirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.